Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now, friends, this is the uh, third sermon in our sermon series on the letter of James. And tonight we're going to study James chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11. Now, we've seen how James, uh, Jesus' younger half-brother and leader of the church in Jerusalem after Peter's flight during Herod Agrippa's crackdown, writes in this letter to believers who have fled persecution in the city. We saw from his account in the Acts of the Apostles that these believers have joined the dispersion, that is, refugees, Jewish refugees in Gentile cities around the Mediterranean. They've lost everything, their support networks of health, wealth, livelihood, family, and friends. So James writes this letter to encourage them. He writes that joy is the result of trial and suffering for the Christian believer. He connects trials with joy by means of wisdom. In verse 5 he wrote, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. In other words, a believer will receive the insight and understanding he or she needs to endure the trials that come when we ask God, whom our spiritual eyes can see by faith, and God will give it generously to us. He reminds them that spiritual sight is corrected, it is sharpened in the study of the scripture of God's word and its application to our lives. The difficulty that may come that can indeed hide God's wisdom is a double-minded or a double-souled person. In other words, an irresolution where moral choices are concerned, conformity to God's word is concerned. Application is ignored. And so, one has an attitude that does not harmonize with God's wisdom. That person is like the surface of the sea. They are inconstant. They're adrift, tossed here and there. But now James continues his encouragement in these next verses. He wants to explain how we are to deal with both poverty and wealth. He points out that the one area that these Jewish believers need to apply God's wisdom is exactly here, in poverty and wealth. It is in how they are to guard against a common danger to both. The danger in seeking more material blessings of this world. As John Calvin wrote in his Institutes in Book 1, where the problem for rich and poor alike is simply this, that the human mind, so to speak, is a perpetual forge of idols. And so James addresses this one great idol here, that these two groups 
are in danger of. He writes to the poor, who have endured great material loss in their escape. He writes to the rich, who have in some way managed to come away with much more in possession and wealth. Perhaps this group were part of a larger guild of merchants, of which they were already a member. It's as if they closed their offices in New York City and reopened them in Amsterdam. But both groups now mingle together in the fellowship of the church. And so the differences in gifts and abilities that each member brings into the church becomes mutually supporting, building one another up into a unity in a way that is seen nowhere else. So here's the question. James is addressing something about the danger, the danger to this unity. It is the danger of worldly boasting. Instead of, as James explains here, godly boasting. Now what do I mean? Well, notice in our text this evening how James does not see a certain type of boasting as a problem. Worldly boasting gathered around material possessions and talents and abilities is the problem. But instead, he sees boasting here as the solution. Do you see it? Let the lowly brother boast. And then, the rich, he writes, let the rich boast. It's a paradox if we don't understand what's going on, isn't it? The resolution of the problem between rich and poor where this worldly material boasting could be a problem, James writes that the solution is in a godly boasting. And here's the thing. You see, many times people have suggested that there's a big difference between the Apostle James and the Apostle Paul. And here is one example where they forget that the one person who corners the market in this kind of godly boasting that James cites here, is indeed the Apostle Paul. He writes in Romans that because of our sin, we have no room for boasting. But we come to know the Lord Jesus, to trust him, him for our lives, the result is a triumphant boasting. In Romans 5, Paul writes how we boast and exult in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we then even boast in our sufferings. Of his own self, he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, But he, Christ, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In other words, I will exult and boast in the weakness that I experience, because it is in that weakness that the Lord Jesus shows his glory. This is the theology that underlies what James is getting on about here. He brings all this together. What unites us is our godly boasting, no matter what our differences may be. A godly boasting in Jesus Christ and in what Jesus Christ has done for us. So we see here in this terse Sentence or two that James writes of exaltation, humiliation, and then concludes 
with a motivation drawn from the Old Testament. Let's look at the first, exaltation. Now, this is the raising up of the poor man or woman. Now, I want you to be very clear here with me that James is not writing that poverty is a good thing or that it is safe for the rich to ignore those who are poor. As a matter of fact, James will address this very attitude directly later on in his letter. But he writes here from the perspective that poverty is one of the various tests, the great trials of life, that the believer will endure. And that's the hint we need. Understand that in my poverty, God is testing me just as in success and wealth, God is testing me. If you have wealth, then you must be very aware that this is a huge spiritual test. And if you're poor, it's an enormous test of your spirituality. Because whether rich or poor, the possession or the lack of possession reveals something. It reveals what is the real treasure of your heart. Now, I want to be clear here. It's a, it's a good thing, an important thing to relieve a person's poverty from the provision God has given you. It's a good thing. When you do that and you acknowledge that God's provided all that you have, you know, you can give generously and God provides. God always provides. This is a good thing. But it's not exactly what James is on about here. He's not suggesting an economic model where we share everything in common or some kind of self-reliant capitalism where you pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Because neither of those methods will deal with the heart of the matter, the human heart. The poor person who cannot deal in a godly way with his poverty or her poverty would be overwhelmed with the great gain of riches. And the rich person who cannot deal in a godly way with his or her wealth will be overwhelmed with its loss. For James, we can learn to deal with either when we learn to boast in true riches. Now, we know Apostle, the Apostle Paul wrote in the same way. Now, as you may recall from our other studies of his letters, I don't think it's unreasonable to imagine that the Apostle Paul was disinherited by his family amongst the Orthodox of Judaism today, it still happens. If you convert, you are disowned. It's as if you were dead to the family. Now, we know he was born in Cilicia as a Roman citizen. He reveals this in the Acts of the Apostles. Now, such an honor would be granted to a city or region in light of special status and service to Rome. And his family must have been one of the elites of that region who gained the citizenship. And so when they learned of his conversion, he's cut off from his family. 
and their wealth. We studied the letter to the Hebrews. We found the same thing. Those that had been converted from Jewish families were cut off entirely. Could no longer work in their professions within the city of Jerusalem. This is how Paul writes, doesn't he? I have lost everything. But I, I don't even have the words to express the marvel of the riches and treasures in Jesus Christ. This is what James is writing here. Boast, because in Jesus Christ you are exalted to solid joys and lasting treasures. And so, as Calvin suggests, the poor person is building idols that will get him out of his poverty. You know, the idea that if I, oh, well, if I just had some more money, then. It's the old nemesis of ours, isn't it? This when-then thinking. When I win the lottery, then I will be happy. How many times have I heard over the years, well, Father Henry, when I win the lottery, the church is getting a big check. You see, dear, the thing is here is that nothing fits the whole that we find in men and women who were created for eternity. Nothing material, nothing that doesn't last will fill that hole. It's only the eternal, the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. Only he can fill that hole. Now, what else can we see James alluding to here? just as he did in terms of inconstancy and a double-souled person in serving two masters, once again, Jesus is alluding to, uh, James is alluding, I beg your pardon, to Jesus' teaching. It's his parable of the soils. The soils that represent the uh, cares of the world, the deceit of riches, the desire for other things that choke the word so that it remains ungerminated, unfruitful. Now, don't be fooled into thinking that Jesus meant the rich in his teaching as some sort of separate class of person. It's just as applicable, the parable, to the poor person who can be deceived by lesser idols, material things, money. You see, both never have enough, do they? And they lose sight of the lasting treasure found in Jesus Christ. But when he or she finds this treasure, they boast they have the treasure that will last, where neither moth or rust will corrupt, or thieves break in and steal. Sound familiar? Yes, Jesus is teaching again. Their life is transformed, even in the midst of poverty, even in the midst of riches. They have a spirit of exaltation and joy that you would rarely have in any other way. So let the lowly brother exult in his heavenly treasure in Christ Jesus. But what of the rich person? Well, James writes, he or she is to exult in their humiliation. Humiliation is the second point. The humiliation to discover the riches they have in Christ. Now, James assumes that there are rich families in this congregation or these congregations that receive his letter. And just like Jesus, he's concerned with the rich who trust in their riches. 
There's a famous encounter in Matthew's Gospel, isn't there? Matthew 19, the rich young man who comes to Jesus, but went away in sorrow because he trusted in his riches rather than in the promise of God in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to make something uh, important here, uh, very clear to you both. We've got to take care not to understand riches solely in terms of material wealth. Because we are all richly endowed in many ways, in terms of intelligence, perhaps a lack of disability that shudders the world from us. We might be gifted in leadership or influence or in popularity or in good looks or it might be our family history and its accomplishments. All the time, we're doing a version of the rich man or woman and comparing ourselves to others around us because we're focused on what we possess, what I have done in terms of my accomplishments, as if I've done it all on my own. Why do we think we have attained them? Some might say, well, I, but I have attained them. You know, it's sad to realize this. I remember thinking, that when I went up after finishing my last degree, it was more meaningful to me than anything else I had done because of what I had done. Shame on me. It's sad to hear a man or woman hold so tightly onto such things as if this thing will provide security. That thing will provide dignity that will last through what James calls the heat of the noonday sun, when everything that is ephemeral will dry up and vanish. The same person who says they love the Lord Jesus' teaching, but Jesus' teaching is that the one who thinks this way, who lives this way, is a lost soul. It's not just for those who have money, you see. It's for us all, because we are all gifted by God in a variety of ways. The moment we make those things our security is the moment our hearts fire up to be the forge that makes another new idol and another and another and another. When I would visit homes, you could always go into the front room where they took the vicar, you know, that was the nice room. And they used to have on display the things they were most proud of. And what I would note there was where their security really lay. You see, real conversion in Jesus Christ, as Jesus himself taught, real conversion is by comparison with all you receive from me, and you take all the rest, all those other things and talents and material wealth, and you lock them away in the hate box. And then you know you have been converted. That's what Jesus used to teach. You cannot be my disciple 
if you're not prepared to let everything fall from your hand, because it's only with an empty hand that you can gain a firm grasp of me. You cannot hold on to things as security and hold on to myself, Jesus Christ, as your treasure. James is writing here that for a rich person, this is deeply humiliating that all the castles you've built are just castles in the air. Every believer is being deconstructed and reconstructed. All of us can shout out, but I depend on this. And Jesus says to you and to me, child, give it to me. Hold on to me exclusively. It's hard. It hurts. But when we start to do this, we begin to see how glorious and marvelous the Lord Jesus truly is. In a way, James writes that we perceive our accomplishments through a microscope. We take these little things and we make them much, much bigger than they truly are. Rather, says James, look at Jesus through a telescope. He is much, much bigger, much more sufficient than you think. Like Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12, In any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. How? Philippians 3.8 I count everything as loss. It's in the hate box. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Christ is all the treasure of his heart. That's the question, isn't it? Can I be this way too? Humiliation is transformed into glorious sweetness for the rich. And there is a motivation shared by both. James gathered this all up together in this idea that if I have more, all will be well. More treasure, just a little more. Is this too much to ask, Lord? We constantly mistake and confuse the temporal with the eternal. With what we perceive in appearance versus the reality which we will only see with spiritual eyes of faith. And so James once again draws marvelously from the Old Testament here to make his point, specifically to the prophet Isaiah. The prophet who cries out in chapter 40 that all people are like grass. All human faithfulness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But, says Isaiah, the word of our God endures forever. The Apostle Peter alludes to the same imagery as James does in his first letter in chapter 1. We are born again of imperishable seed, not perishable. Therefore, live your lives accordingly. You know, friends, I have heard literally hundreds of funeral eulogies in 30 years, where the name of the Lord Jesus is never mentioned at all. It is sad, really, to sit and to listen to them. Amidst a funeral liturgy, 
that is full of references to the Lord Jesus. But the coffin seems to float like a raft above it, so near to Jesus Christ, but so far from the Lord Jesus Christ. As I sit in my prayer desk and the member of the family is going on in this way, I just think, oh my, here indeed is true poverty. And when I stand at the grave to say the final words and then I turn away, I have stood indeed amongst polished granite and marble and crypt with stained glass windows, angelic statues, a permanent photograph, row upon row of bronze and costly stone. But in the end, I'm standing in a pauper's field. James is so concerned for us that we know the thing that matters, our treasure in Christ Jesus which will make me content in all things. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.